focus for today is found in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Hallows Church. I am so excited to be with you guys. My name is Stephen, and I serve here at the Hallows uh, as the church planter in residence. And what that means, if you don't know what that means, is that I am going to start a new church in the city uh, at some point in the future by God's grace. Um, and so uh, I get the opportunity today to take a small break from our sermon series through 1 Samuel, uh, when mess meets mercy. And the, the reason kind of being for this is we're, we're having another shift in the story. So remember, if you remember, 1 Samuel starts with the story of Samuel himself, and then it shifts to the story of Saul. And then we are now taking the turn to really the story of David and so uh, in this little break and in, in change in themes, we've decided to, to kind of take a little one-off here, and uh, I got the opportunity to, to choose a passage uh, that God was putting on my heart, and we, we settled on John 6. And, and while this is quite a different passage than what 1 Samuel was, uh, there are definitely some thematic elements that we can pull through. See, the children of Israel... Remember, in about chapter 8, started to cry out for a king. They had this desire for themselves to be protected and to be like everybody else. And here we are in John chapter 6. We are thousands of years later, and we're going to see that the children of Israel are still asking for the same thing. They're still asking for a king to save them. They're still asking for something physical that they feel that they need. And, and then if we fast forward a couple thousand years to today, I think that still we often look and wonder when that king or where that king is or is that king sufficient in Jesus. And so there's definitely some ties that we can kind of draw as we look at the scripture today. And so my hope for you guys is that as we walk through John chapter 6, that you will begin to identify things in the story that you still feel today. Is it anxiety? Is it a lack of sufficiency? Is it maybe that you haven't put your trust in Jesus? So my challenge, my hope, my desire is that as we walk through this, that you guys come along with me and find where you are 
in this story. Now, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you guys to open them up to John chapter 6. John uh, is a biography of Jesus' life. There are four of those, and I'll talk about all four today just briefly. Those four accounts of Jesus' life uh, are called Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're in the New Testament of your Bible, so they're about three-fourths of the way for it through if you're not familiar. And we're going to land in chapter 6. So I'll give you a little snapshot of where we are in Jesus' ministry. So Jesus' ministry is really in full swing. He has just really anointed or he's, he's kind of chosen these 12 men that will follow along with him until the end of his life. And the, on these 12 men, we will start to see the beginnings of what we know as the church today. Jesus took these 12 guys, and there was not a lot special about them. In fact, some of them, you wonder, how could this guy possibly be chosen by Jesus? Um, but Jesus chose these 12 guys. Uh, Jesus has just uh, been to Nazareth. Nazareth is where he, was, uh, where he grew up, and he's been rejected pretty heavily by the people there in Nazareth. Then he finds out that his cousin, a guy that we call John the Baptist, has just been beheaded. He's been executed by the Roman authorities. Jesus had then sent his disciples out, and so these 12 guys for the first time are kind of on their own, and they're out doing ministry, and Jesus is doing ministry, and they've come back together, and then they find themselves surrounded by crowds. And the only assumption that we can make when looking at the text and and understanding what's going on is these guys are tired. They're tired because life has been hard. They just went through rejection and tragedy and the death of John the Baptist. They've been assailed by crowds every single where they go. Multitudes follow Jesus and the disciples, and they are tired. And at the beginning of John chapter 6, we see a story that's actually recounted in all four of the retellings of Jesus' story. And that's uh, a miracle that those of us that are familiar with the Bible call the feeding of the 5,000. It's a very interesting thing that Jesus does here. And and John uh, gives the the least detailed account. So I'm going to kind of retell the story, but from a, a little macro perspective so that we can look and understand really what was going on. And we have to use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really to understand the whole of the story to see kind of what was really going on. So Jesus had just been preaching all day long. And he was tired, and the disciples were tired, and now the people are tired, because I don't know about you, but I don't know that I could listen to a sermon all day long. Like that's, that's a lot, but hey, I'm glad that they were. They were hearing these words that Jesus was giving for the first time, and it was incredible. I promise you, I will not keep you all day long. So we're here, and Jesus had just been speaking, and, and the, the Gospel of Luke, Luke's account tells us that, uh, that he had been teaching on the kingdom of God. And this was a new concept for the people, mainly the Jewish people that he was speaking to. They knew what a kingdom was. They had the kingdom of Israel. In fact, uh, Israel at one point, the the people had split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And now they had been taken over by another kingdom in Rome. They had been taken over by the Babylonians. They had seen the Assyrian kingdom. So they were very familiar with kingdoms. But Jesus was introducing this new type of kingdom, this this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven that they didn't quite understand. And Jesus would continually teach on the kingdom of God and people would continue to miss what it meant. 
And this is one of those stories. So after teaching on the kingdom of God, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, dude, you've got to send these people away. They are hungry and they are tired and it's getting late in the day. They need some food. And so Jesus then flips it around on them. He looks at a guy named Philip and he says, Philip, how should we feed these people? And Philip immediately goes to this calculation process. Philip is a thinker. I don't know if you guys uh, are thinkers or spreadsheet people. Well, my, my father-in-law is, is a, an engineer in every sense of the word, and the moment that you give him a problem, a spreadsheet is coming. So uh, I feel, feel like Philip and my father-in-law have a lot in common. So Philip, all of a sudden, he kind of is doing these calculations, and he says, okay, okay, okay. If we have this many people, and I have this much money, and I could buy this much bread, and he starts to go through it, and then he looks at Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if we had 200 denarii, we couldn't even get enough for most of these people to have a little bit. Now, 200 denarii means nothing to you, unless you are, you know, well-versed in uh, ancient Jewish commerce, uh, but a denarius uh, is a, uh, a unit of measure for about one day's labor for a normal worker. So basically, Philip is saying, if we had 200 days wages, we couldn't buy enough bread to give most of these people a little bit. And so Jesus looks at him and says, well, what do you have? And so they kind of scramble and they find this little kid. And, and it's very interesting. As I, I was researching, different commentators have different ideas about this kid. Do they like steal this kid's lunch or like, you know, did this kid like offer it? Like, we don't really know what happened. We just know that there was a kid and he had fish, two specifically, and he had loaves of bread. And so that's like, they're like, okay, we, we got this kid's lunch here, Jesus, what can you do with it? And Philip kind of says, like sarcastically, he's like, here you go. Let's see what you can do. So this is the first part in, in, of this story that's really interesting. And as I was trying to find a theme for this, uh, this passage, I, this, this phrase kept coming up, the, the, the bankruptcy of human calculation and the sufficiency of divine provision. Now, if you know me, you know that those are not my words. I would never use sufficiency and provision. I definitely wouldn't use bankruptcy. So I definitely did borrow these from a theologian named William Haskins. But when I'm thinking about that statement, the bankruptcy of human calculation and the sufficiency of divine provision started to strike something in me because that's what we see with Philip. Philip immediately calculated how little they had and how insufficient what they had was. But see, what they had forgotten was the Jesus of it all. And if you're taking notes, I'd love to invite you to write this down. Never discount the Jesus of it all. You see, the reality is, is that our insufficiency is sufficient to Jesus. In fact, Paul, who was uh, really the church's first missionary and first church planter, he would say later in a letter to the Corinthians, he would say that in our weakness, Christ's power is made perfect. So here we have Philip 
completely missing the mark. His, his calculation is completely bankrupt because he just doesn't know. He doesn't get it. Now, John, the, the, the writer of John, actually does a little bit of commentary himself here, and he says that Jesus actually knew what he, what he was about to do, and so this was a, Philip, or a test for Philip. It's a test. Jesus was like, okay, where, let me get a little pulse of where my, my disciples, my, my closest friends, how, how do they believe? Where are they at? And Philip doesn't quite pass the test. That's okay. But what we see is they take this insufficient amount of fish and bread, and Jesus blesses it, and he breaks it, and then he distributes, and he distributes, and he distributes, and he distributes. He distributes enough that all 5,000 men, now, uh, in what we know about uh, ancient literature is that like, they would count men, uh, and that's not including women and children, so uh, commentators believe that we could have had 8,000, 15,000, 17,000 people so we have thousands of people here, five loaves, two fish, and Jesus just keeps distributing and keeps distributing, and everyone has not just a little bit, but has their fill. And then because Jesus doesn't want to be wasteful, he tells the, the 12 of his closest friends, he says, hey guys, go and collect all the rest. And so they take these big baskets and they pick up the pieces of bread and there's enough to fill 12 baskets. So the people are amazed. The disciples are amazed. The 12 are amazed at what Jesus has done. So another important piece of information that you would see early on here is that we were close to Passover. And Passover was a Jewish celebration of their exodus or of their exit out of slavery in Egypt. So around this time, the people uh, of the Jewish faith are really reflecting on what it means to be freed from slavery, what it means to have freedom, what it meant to be out of bondage and captivity. And so then they see this Jesus, who they've been following because they've seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle. They love his teachings. They love even more what he can do for them. And so in this time, they think, you know, what would be great is if we put Jesus as king. And at the end of this little section, John says that Jesus quickly went away because he knew that they were going to take him by force and make him king. But Jesus had been preaching about a different kingdom, not a physical one, but an eternal one. So the people just kind of weren't getting it. So what Jesus does is tell his, his 12 apostles, he says, hey guys, you go across the lake. They're at the place called the, the, lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee or Lake of Tiberias. There's like four or five other names that this place has had, but it's this big body of water. So they say, hey guys, you go across the lake and that's it. It's <laughs> kind of all Jesus says to them. So Jesus goes away into the mountains to pray and to rest because he's tired. And then the disciples look around and say, okay, I guess he's not coming back, so I guess we should go. So they get into the boat. They get into the boat. They start to row out to sea. And then in the middle of the sea, John says it's about three or four miles out. 
we see the disciples, the apostles, the twelve have this misadventure. So we first have seen Philip's miscalculation, and now we see this misadventure by the twelve. They are in the middle of the sea, doing what Jesus told them to do, and a storm comes. Now these guys, you know, most of them were fishermen by trade, so they literally lived their life on the water. Like, they knew what they were doing. But by what we understand from, from the stories that are told, these guys were terrified. I imagine that they maybe took ropes and wrapped it around their arms and they were, bare, they were holding on so tightly that their knuckles were white and the spray of the sea is splashing their face and they're trying to yell to each other uh, what to do on how to, to bail the water fast enough and they fear that they are going to die. They have this moment where they think, why did Jesus send us here? If we would have just stayed on the shore, we would have been okay. What did I leave my family for just to die here in the middle of the the sea? A lot of fear, a lot of anxiety in the middle of this. And then they see a figure walking on the water. Now, guys, this entire chapter has a lot of weird stuff. This is weird, right? You're three or four miles out into about a six to eight mile across stretch of water. There is a horrible storm. And then you see a figure come walking out towards you. So the disciples do exactly what I would do, and they freak out. They're like, it's a ghost! (laughs) We're done for. (laughs) Completely understandable. If I saw a figure walking on the water, I would probably jump overboard. Like, I'm going to get away from this because I don't know what it is. (laughs) It's very terrifying. So they walk. Or they, sorry, the, the figure walks and walks and the figure cries at out to them and says, do not be afraid. And I can imagine the disciples say, too late. I'm afraid. (laughs) When then Jesus goes on to say, it's me. It's Jesus. Guys, I want you to think about this. In the middle of this misadventure, remember who sent the disciples. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. If God sent you, he'll go with you. See, this misadventure was really centered around the disciples' unbelief. They didn't believe. See, Jesus had plans for them. Jesus knew what was going to happen with them. Jesus knew what was going to happen with him. And so this misadventure really centers around the disciples not believing in who Jesus was. And then they see Jesus as, and they think he's a ghost. And so the, this whole thing really begs the question, did the disciples believe that Jesus really was who he said he was? And, and at this point, these 12 apostles, these 12 closest uh, to Jesus, we've got, we kind of have that question. We don't know. 
what they truly think about him, what they're understanding from him. They've seen him do a lot of stuff, but do they understand who he is? So then the next weird thing happens. Jesus comes onto the boat, and on the, uh, the, the other accounts of this story tell us that the waves and the wind died completely. And then John says that immediately they were on the other side. So we've got teleportation, we got water walking, we got Jesus saving a bunch of money on groceries, okay? This story is getting weird, but it gets weirder. It gets weirder. Because the next day, this happens. If you've got your Bible, look at verse 24. The words will be on the screen if you don't. Verse 24 says, When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boat and they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven. Now let me just take one second and and let's think about what Jesus is thinking. They knew that Jesus didn't go across on a boat. They knew that Jesus had just performed the miracle of feeding these thousands of people. In fact, they were following Jesus because of miracle after miracle after miracle that he had done. And so they come to him and they say, what should we do to do the works of God? And and Jesus says, just believe in me. And so they say, okay, what sign are you going to do? What are you going to perform for us so that we know that we can trust you? And Jesus has got to say, really? Like everything that I've just done just isn't enough. Like every, you know, the, like what about the, you know, the feeding of, of the people and what about the miracles? You know, what about, what about, what about, what about? And Jack could just imagine that Jesus' mind is just reeling. Like, will these people ever get it? They're looking for another sign. And Jesus really points to why at the very beginning, his very first response is that you didn't come to me because you saw signs. You're here now because of what I can give you. You're here now because you had a full belly yesterday. You're still looking for physical stuff. You're still wanting something else. See, the people had this false belief that the more they got, the more they got from Jesus, the more they would believe. But Jesus kind of turns it on his head and he says, no, no. What you need to do is believe. That's the one work I need from you. And so then these people are, 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 are well-versed in, in their own history, and they say, well, you know, our, our fathers ate manna that Moses gave us. But Jesus has a response to that in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. 
But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. And then here's the kicker. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So these people had come to Jesus for a physical need, and suddenly Jesus turns it on its head and says, I am what you need. I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Now this is a, this is a pretty bold claim. He's claiming that, that he, a person, had come from God the Father, and they really struggled with that. And, and I can kind of understand it. I mean, what we know about the people that were following him, because later on in the chapter, they start to say, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Isn't this the one who we saw grow up from a baby? How can he then say that he's come from heaven? So this story, this little section of our passage really is about the Jews' misunderstanding. They're not really getting what Jesus is saying. They're not really seeing what he is trying to do. You see, Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God the day before. This non-physical, eternal kingdom. And so he does a miracle that is supposed to be a sign to point to something greater. And now this greater thing is the dissertation that Jesus is giving about I am the bread of life. Jesus used something before to point to what he's going to do, and he does this a lot. But just as the people were hearing about the kingdom of heaven and then trying to make Jesus a physical king. They hear this statement, I am the bread of life, and they still think, we want the bread that we can eat and live forever. They say, give us this bread that you speak of. And so then when Jesus says, here I am, they think, what is he talking about? There's no way. We know who this is. He cannot be what he's saying. When the Jews come to Jesus, they're looking for a miracle worker. But guys, Jesus is so much more than a miracle worker. Jesus is so much more than someone who can give us things. He is someone who can save. He is so much more than a physical savior. He is an eternal one. In fact, what the people were seeking was something that could sustain them for another day, something that would give them food forever for the rest of their lives. But what Jesus wanted to give them was a new life. See, 
the bread of life does not just sustain life, it gives it. And this is a huge turn. For Jesus is saying, I am not here just to sustain the life that you have, but to give you a new one. And they couldn't understand that. Their minds were so caught up in physical freedom. Their minds were so caught up in physical sustenance. Their their mind was so caught up in what is going on day to day. And guys, before we look down on them, they're living in a society where like wealth is, is even less of a thing. They're an agrarian society, so they're farming, they're fishing, they're literally working day in and day out all the time just to get enough food to live. So when Jesus offers what they think is a physical, you know, a a food that will last forever, of course that's where their mind's going to go to because that's their biggest need in their minds. In their mind, their biggest need is to eat the next day. In their minds, their, their biggest need is to take care of their family. In their minds, their biggest need was physical. But Jesus understood that that wasn't their biggest need. Their biggest need was deeply spiritual. And I can only imagine that today, people in this room, but especially people not in this room, people who don't know Jesus, feel that their biggest need is something physical. We told day in and day out to survive, to take care of our families, to amass something here, because to many, here is all that they have. And so when we encounter someone who doesn't know Jesus and they talk about earthly things, when they talk about earthly success, when they talk about those things, it's it only stands to reason. But there's a truth that, that is so deeply embedded in us. There's a hole in each and every one of us at birth that is a spiritual need, something that is, need, is needed and can only be filled by Jesus. And this is bread, this bread of life. And so imagine with me what that bread, you know, what this bread analogy kind of does. When you eat something, it becomes and infuses into you, right? Our body, what our body does is it takes it in, it goes into our stomach, stomach starts to break it down, then it goes into, you know, our intestines and nutrients are pulled out of it, and then our cells go through, you know, all these wonderful cell cycles. I could bore you with the entire explanation of the cell cycle, but I won't. But if you want to talk about it afterwards, come talk to me. Uh, I love what our body does, but what our body does is it takes food and then it, it, it literally infuses it into all of us so that the food and, and our body then becomes indistinguishable. And this is what Jesus is inviting. Jesus is inviting us, them, to ingest him and allow him to become so deeply ingrained in every cell of our being that we are now indistinguishable from him. That's the invitation. And that invitation is so much more than just here's some bread to eat for the rest of your days. 
It is an invitation to be in intimate relationship with him for eternity. But they didn't see the divine provision as sufficient. And my question is, is do we still? We have the benefit of the stories. We have the benefit of the Holy Spirit. We have the benefit of thousands and thousands of years of men and women telling us the beauty of the gospel. And still, I think we have to question, do we truly believe in the sufficiency of divine provision? Jesus is going to go on to double down. Let's look at verse 47. It says, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for this life of the, oh, sorry, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus here is talking about the sacrifice he is going to make, giving up his body for you and for me. Verse 52 says, At that the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Guys, that is weird. What the Jews are hearing is that Jesus, a man, has invited them to the, the original language here gives a, a connotation of gnaw on, like a dog gnaws on a bone. Jesus is inviting them to gnaw on him. And they are really, really freaked out by this and really angry. Because when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and this is my flesh, we eat the flesh of animals, they, they could get that. But then Jesus takes it another step further and adds in his blood. You see, this is deeply meaningful for Jews. In Leviticus 17, when God is giving out the law for this new nation of Israel, God points specifically to the blood and says, that is where life is. So Jews were not allowed to eat meat that had blood in it. They could not have their steak medium rare, which is super sad. They were eating well-done steak. Man, but they could not eat meat that had the blood in it because the blood is where the life was. And so Jesus says, not only am I the bread of life, but that my blood is true drink as well. And so this is where the Jews' misunderstanding is just too much for them. They cannot, they will not go past this because what they don't understand is that Jesus isn't coming to, to abolish this law of not eating and drinking blood or eating meat with blood in it, but he's coming to fulfill it in a way that maybe they just didn't understand. 
Jesus is now inviting them to something deeper and deep, more meaningful. Jesus is pointing to a sacrifice that's going to come that he already knows. If you have your community elements, I would love for you to grab them real quick. I'm actually going to grab one myself because I forgot to bring one up. Jesus here for the first time is pointing to this sacrifice that he is going to make for us. Jesus is pointing to the end of his life. But he knows that through his flesh and through his blood, through the sacrifice of his body and his blood on the cross, he is going to save humanity. And so I'd love to just take this time to reflect just briefly on that meaning. We know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and we even see the beginnings of this betrayal in this passage. Jesus took bread and he blessed it, just like he did when he was feeding the 5,000. And he broke it, just like he did when he was feeding the 5,000. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then they ate the bread together. And the gospel accounts remind us that in the same way he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. And they drank the cup together. Now, while what we just ingested has no power in itself, it does have the power to help us remember the sacrifice that Jesus was speaking of here. A, a power that would cause many people to turn away from Jesus. A foretelling that would cause many people to turn away from Jesus. In fact, what we know here is that these Jews who heard Jesus speak these words left. But then there's a whole other group, what the Gospel of John calls disciples. And disciples are people that have followed Jesus, they've kind of bought into him, but they're not quite there yet. And in verse 60, we see what those disciples, those people who were kind of on the periphery, who kind of thought that Jesus was something special, but maybe not as special as he should be. And verse 60 says this, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is, is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? When the Son of Man, sorry, then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe 
and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So this is another rejection for Jesus. Jesus has been deeply rejected at Nazareth before this story. And now his disciples, the people that had been with him, people that were kind of on the periphery, kind of trying to see what Jesus was about. They weren't quite the Jews, so when, when the gospel writers use the term the Jews, they're normally talking about people that were uh, in opposition to Jesus, so they were kind of there just to catch him in something. So as soon as he said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, they were like, we got it, we're out. Then you have this smaller group of the disciples. These disciples are people who had heard Jesus teach and who were choosing to continue to follow. But they come, to Jesus, they come and they're, they're talking to themselves and they say, this is too hard. This, this believing in Jesus, that he is the bread of life, that he is the bread come down from heaven. See, this is the disciples' misinterpretation. They could not interpret what Jesus was doing. They could not see what Jesus was saying. And things got too hard. And I'm going to be real honest with you. There are some things about following Christ that just are too hard sometimes. Sometimes it's really hard to read something in Scripture to learn something, hear something in a sermon, sometimes it's really hard. And in those moments, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus sufficient? Even when something is hard to believe, even when it goes against what we feel are our sensibilities or what we feel is what, what we are, who, who we are, or whatever our belief system is, when, when the gospel intersects with that in a perpendicular way, what wins out, our human calculations or divine provision? Every day, we have to make these decisions. Every day, you and I have to, to work through those things that are hard to understand, that are hard to believe, that are hard to, to reconcile with our culture, with ourselves. And decide, is my calculation the correct one or is Jesus sufficient? Our most bankrupt miscalculation, though, is that something physical can meet this spiritual need that we have. So when we put identity in something else, when we put our trust, our hope in something else to take care of us, because oftentimes what happens when the gospel intersects us perpendicularly is that we are depending on something, our identity, you know, uh, who, who we were or what we are doing or all of these things. We depend on those things to take care of us, a physical thing. But what we really truly need, like I said earlier, is a spiritual fix. There's something deeply broken in each of us that only Jesus can fulfill and satisfy and sustain. And so here we see Jesus' disciples completely misinterpreting what Jesus said, 
One of the hardest things that Jesus did here, though, was strip their self-sufficiency away. Because it no longer was works that they did, but it was a work that he was about to do. That was very hard. People who work day in and day out for their living to then be told that it's not you, but it's me. It's very hard for people to grasp that. It's very hard for me today to grasp that. That it's not what I do, but it's what Jesus has done. At least we have the cross to reflect on. These people did not have the cross to reflect on, but to look forward to. So I understand, in a way, why the disciples feel this way. And Scripture tells us they just took off. They never came back. The theologian that I quoted earlier, William Hendricks, said this about this kind of double rejection that Jesus has just gone through. He says, the account of this double rejection is necessary in order to furnish a background for the next few chapters in the sense that it causes the tender love of the Savior to stand out sharply against the background of human ingratitude. Think about the truth of those words, that Jesus being rejected twice, deeply probably wounded by these people that were close to him, We see this story, and it gives us a background to see how sufficient the love of Jesus is against our human ingratitude. Because the reality is, is that oftentimes we fail to see that divine provision is sufficient, that Jesus is sufficient. The story ends with a story of hope, Jesus turns to the guys that are closest to him. We call them the 12, the 12 apostles. And in verse 67, Jesus says this. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We end with Peter's correct assumption. So five calculations were made. Philip, trying to understand how we could feed all these people, he got it wrong. The Jews, trying to understand how they could drink blood and eat flesh and that could sustain them, they got it wrong. The disciples, thinking, man, this is really hard. I, can't, I don't think I can do this with you, Jesus. They got it wrong. The apostles, I missed one. The apostles' misadventure when they're on, they're in the middle of a storm that Jesus had sent them on and they didn't think Jesus would come with them. They got it wrong. Time and time again, human calculation was bankrupt, but divine provision was sufficient. And today, you and I have to make that decision for ourselves. The thing that sets Peter apart from all these others is that he got it. And I think what makes him even more different is that he was so close to Jesus. See, the last thing I'd love for you to write down is that the closest 
understand the greatest. The closer that we find ourselves to Jesus, the easier things are to understand. The nearer that we draw to his word, the nearer that we draw to him, that we draw into community with each other, and as we slowly digest the truth of Jesus, we understand better. The closest understand the greatest. I had a moment like this in my life a couple years ago. I had just gotten a new job. I was running a mentoring and case management program for students in low-income school districts. So I was, I was having my first big events, and I went to the school cafeteria, and I started handing out flyers to all these kids. We, uh, we were bribing them with Chick-fil-A so they would come, uh, give up their lunch hour to come hear what we had to say to join our program. And so flyer after flyer after flyer, I'm giving out. I'm saying, hey, all you need to hear is that there's free food. You should come. It's really good. There'll be enough for all of you. Don't worry. And student after student starts saying, yeah, okay, well, yeah, cool, we'll be there, awesome, we'll be there. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired, I find myself like ready to leave, and I see the, the assistant principal, one of the assistant principals walking up with this young girl, and he says, hey, Stephen, you should meet this young lady. Her name was Jasmine. And I said, uh, hi, you know, nice to meet you. Uh, would you like to hear about our program? And she kind of, you know, noncommittally shrugs her shoulders. And so I give her the flyer, I give her the spiel, and I get ready to walk away. Because that's what I was there for. I was there to say, hey, come get food, you'll be good to go. And as I turn to go, I'll never forget, she grabs me by my wrist and she says, can I ask you a question? And I'm thinking, yeah, she's going to ask what the date was, what the time was. Are we going to be in A, B, and C lunch? You know, all of the questions that I had I'd heard before. And, and I said, yeah, absolutely. What do you got? And she said, I'm pregnant, and I don't know what to do. And I looked into the face of a 16-year-old girl who was terrified, not knowing what she was going to do. She had very little family support. The father was not in the picture. And she was so scared. And in that moment, my mind starts to calculate all of the things that I could say. My mind starts to reel about, okay, do I get her to the pregnancy health center? Okay, how can we get her to a food bank? Uh, you know, the, she, needs, she needs probably more than just this program. Let's try to get her into another program. How do I do all the things to make sure that this child who God has given life to, not only the child in the womb, but the one standing in front of me, how can I get them what they need? And immediately I realized that I just don't have enough to give her. Anything that I'm supposed to bring her right now, any program that I bring her to, anything that I show her is completely insufficient. I've got nothing. And so I have this moment of abject fear where I say, I don't have anything to give her. And then I remember, but I have Jesus. And in that moment, I have to ask, is Jesus sufficient? Is the gospel enough? 
Is the gospel enough? It's very easy to stand up here and to read the words of Jesus and give all of these great ideas and throw all these great ideas out to you guys. It's easy for us inside the walls of a church to, to talk about. It's very hard to live the sufficiency of Jesus outside. And I asked myself, is the gospel enough? And in that moment, I decided yes. So I got her contact information, and we did all the things that we could for her. We got her to the pregnancy help center, and we got her to the food bank, and we got her a mentor, and we did all of these things. The most important thing we did was invite her to know this guy named Jesus. Now, I don't know where Jasmine stands in her faith now, but I do know that she has a happy and healthy three-year-old baby girl. She has a job, she has a career. In that moment, I had to ask, man, is Jesus enough? Is he truly the bread of life? Come down from heaven for you and for me, and he is sufficient. So my challenge as you guys go into the week is that. Is Jesus sufficient in your life? When confronted with heartache, with questions you can't answer, is he sufficient? When you look at debt and the income continues to shrink and the debt continues to grow, is Jesus sufficient? When time after time after time you're trying something and you're failing, when life just seems too much, is God, is Jesus, is the gospel sufficient? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, Lord, you are, you are sufficient for us. Lord, I, I don't have words. Not an eloquent man, but God, I am thankful. I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for his sacrifice. I'm thankful thankful for all the signs that Jesus did to point us to the fact that he is the bread of life and that if we would only trust in his sacrifice, in his broken body, in his shed blood, then we, if we would consume it, if we would take him into us through our belief, he would infuse himself into every cell in our body and we would live eternally with him and with you. So thankful for that truth. God, I love you. I cannot wait until we see you face to face. But until that time, Lord, teach us more every day what it means to understand and trust in the sufficiency of divine provision. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.